Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. I'm your host, Allison Weisbrot, editor of Campaign US, and my guest this week is Wesley Turhar, co-founder of Media Monks. It's been four months since Media Monks became the banner brand for Martin Sorrell's S4 Capital, the new age global digital agency he launched in 2017. Since then, Media Monks has merged with 24 companies across digital content and data practice areas. Turhar is focused on making the integrated model work for clients at scale. Media Monks employs more than 6,000 people in 31 countries under a single PNL. He's also got his sights set on the future of creativity, metaverse anyone, and hiring more makers to Media Monks creative teams. Hey Wes, how's it going? Doing well, doing well. Thank you for the invite. Thanks for joining me. Um, so I'm really interested in speaking with you about Media Monks, and obviously you guys have gone through a few changes this year in terms of how your your brand is is perceived by the industry and and um, you know the way that you're structured is a little bit different and I know you're very focused on the agency structure in your role so before we dive into all that talk to me a little bit about how the the uh, rebrand has gone and and what's changed since it happened yeah so that was uh, that that had been on the board for a while um, and really was the original intent when we started with the S4 story in the middle of 2018. It was really about what is the, the fundamental differences that we can put into the ecosystem against the traditional networks. Uh, and part of that was single PL. Part of that was no earnout structures for, for teams that join, which means no acquisitions but mergers. And part of that was can we go truly single brand? Because that was this weird sort of um, holy grail that that we had seen a lot of the network struggle with. So we had had it on the board for a while. Um, we actually did it, I think it's about four and a half months ago now. Um, and it's completely changed the way our teams are able to turn up together. Um, I think there, there's just something to human nature that even if you operate as a single team and you take away all of the sort of, I would say, almost uh, administrative complexities to working as one. It's still uh, different email addresses, different logos, different swag. It's still the, the different shirts that everybody wears. So our ability to make that truly one has just meant it's a lot easier for our teams to collaborate. It takes away a lot of the, the sort of overhead in thinking how we, how we talk about ourselves. <clears throat> and for our clients, I think, honestly... Because we had we had told that story to our clients from day one, but they they've heard that story a million times. Everybody has a hey, we act uh, as a single team and it's a single PL, don't worry about it. Everybody has a version of that message in the landscape. Uh, and I don't I honestly don't think clients buy it anymore. So for us going single brand was a real aha moment for clients. They were like, Oh, wait a minute, it isn't just another story or you're actually doing this thing. Um, so that's, that's been pretty amazing for colleagues and clients. And to be honest, um, I'm, I'm almost, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's weird how recent it was and how much different it difference it has already made in how we're, we're able to sort of, um, stand, stand up, which is just really cool to see. 
Mm, so talk about that in a little more detail because I know you were saying that brands, you know, they they see they see that you've changed the brand name and that's real to them, but you know, what about the day-to-day changes? What about the way that you can pull together teams and, and deliver on work for them? Well, we, we did a bit of a have your cake and eat it too, uh, which is flexible brand system. So we're media monks, but um, we, we put a dot in the middle, which allows us to create different different team structure, data monks, performance monks. Really, the, the flexibility of the brand system has allowed us to do two things. It gives uh, what we call ownable space within the organization means Lots of people are loading all of these parts of the organization with with brands, with culture, with real sort of uh, visions and views on what they want to do in the in the landscape. Uh, but for our clients, it means access to subject matter expertise. This this idea, which is really the balancing act that I I think we uh, we we've sort of been able to figure out quite well. If you sort of look at the more traditional network models. There's lots of amazing teams and talent, but if you go in front of a client and you go, let me bring in the experts in CRM or the experts in digital experience or the experts in X, Y, and Z, you bring in a whole different label, a whole different brand, and it just becomes clunky. Like you have to sign in front of a client and you go, this team focuses on that, this team focuses on that. And then the human nature component means those teams working together is actually a bit more difficult than you'd want it to be. We can give um, deep level access to subject matter expertise, but it's all part of the same brand model. But it isn't um, us, which I think is the other complexity, sort of overreaching, right? I think a lot of agency type organizations are very much in the business of telling clients they're good at everything, which I also don't think clients necessarily believe, and rightfully so. So we've been able to sort of go... We actually have amazing subject matter expertise across the board, across the globe, but it isn't just us going, it's just a single team media monks, right? We have these, these sort of um, uh, ownable spaces and it's not completely different labels and brands, which makes it feel super clunky. So it's a really nice way to provide subject matter expertise, provide access to that subject matter expertise, really celebrate it. Uh, which we do a lot of in, in our marketing as well. You'll see lots of different teams sort of be launched into, into, into the world almost and are celebrating the, the level of expertise available. But it's a really nice way to, to sort of find a middle ground between those complexities, right? Somebody just going, we are amazing at everything, which isn't very, uh, isn't very realistic. Or the, hey, we have all these uh, other labels that are good at these things, which just feels, feels super mm. complicated. So when you're, um, and I've seen the way that you guys sort of, um, you know, you take the brand and you make it like data monks, content monks. Um, do you organize teams like that? Or is that more of like an internal kind of rallying cry for, for the talent that's the subject matter experts together? Or do you actually bring those, those different teams to clients? Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of both. I think, uh, and it get it gets, it gets very in the weeds on the organizational structure. We've, We've spent a lot of time thinking about what does a modern organization in this landscape, what does that feel like? How should that be able to organize? And we really want it to feel entrepreneurial. We want teams, especially if you look at the, the, the mergers that join, we want those teams to really keep going. I, I think it, it can be uh, one of the great disappointments 
is the reason we really never joined the traditional network. One of the great disappointments is amazing teams join a bigger thing and then they lose the, um, the energy and they lose the entrepreneurial sort of component. So we're very focused on making sure teams have that ownable space and against that they can, they can really run. So a lot of that is down to how we uh, position in market. It's, it's actual teams. What is interesting is that some of those sit at what we call the capability level. And capabilities really are, are teams that deliver end-to-end. Something comes in, something comes out, and hopefully it's amazing. And those are big global teams. I think social is an amazing example. Social amongst um, 900 people across the globe, active in all of our key city- cities, but they truly operate as a single team across the globe. Um, and that allows us to also put more mergers together. So the next murder that joins from a social perspective knows that that's the team they're joining. We integrate some of the leadership. We make sure everybody's on the same page and they keep running. We also talk about what uh, we've defined as category teams. And category teams is really our ability to look at the landscape, go, hey, there's, there's something new for us to focus on. We might not have the full capability team structured, but we have amazing subject matter expertise that we want our clients to have access to. And probably Metaverse is a great example of that without wanting to be too hype cycly. Uh, we have amazing teams and talent that really understand what's happening in that space. We've brought them together in a category team. We're pretty much in front of all of our clients with that team having the typical conversations that, that clients are sort of trying to figure out. Uh, anything from NFTs to how do we sort of spin up our first Metaverse project. Um and then that goes into different capability teams, right? Because it's some of that sits in our XR team, some of that sits in our virtual events team, some of that sits in sort of real sort of foundational digital transformation elements. But the subject matter expertise has been brought together so we, we can really be a consultative partner to our clients. So it's a bit of a mix of both. Sometimes it's, it's big end-to-end teams that deliver at the capability level. Sometimes it's smaller teams really spinning up against net new moments in the industry and we just want to get our best people connected and in front of our clients as quickly as possible got it okay and so you brought up the metaverse which i definitely want to ask you about because i know you have some some (laughs) thoughts there but one more in the weeds question on org structure which is obviously way more interesting (laughs) um why is it always a merger versus an acquisition i know this is a a sir martin terminology (laughs) thing but i think uh, people are curious about it yeah, it's it's honestly, uh, it, we have really focused on making it more than just a, a semantics game. I think the biggest thing is, and it really was how we how we thought about the start of S4 and, and MediaMonks sort of teaming up with Sir Martin. Uh, we're not uh, selling out, we're buying in, right? This idea that there is there's ways for organizations to... Well, there, there, there's always been sort of a limited amount of opportunities for organizations that, that want to get to the next level. And it was either PE, um, which puts you on the clock, right? You take funding and there's a three to seven year window. And after that, you have to either do another PE firm or you sell and you sell uh, via an acquisition model to a traditional network or over the last um, five, six, seven years, the, the consultancies. But you sell. And for us, the difference between the acquisition and the merger is if you merge with MediaMonks, you're buying in, 
right? Half mm-hmm. of the, the deal structure is money off the table, but half of the deal structure is S4 stock, which means mm-hmm. you're incentivized and all of the teams that join, all of the entrepreneurs that join, all of the folks that are in partner models and, and the likes, they all are incentivized against the exact same thing, which is S4 stock growth. Um, and there's no earnout component to it. There's no, hey, you need to hit these numbers for the next three years to get the full value of your, of your, um, I guess, of the, of the company that you've created. You're in the door. The stock is the, the collective upside. Let's go do the things that we need to go do. So it's, it's a lot more about keeping sort of the intent of the companies alive, not sort of creating perverse incentives for people to take short-term decisions for their earnout instead of longer term uh, decisions for the for the good of the of the company as a whole, mm. and just making sure entrepreneurs are part of the whole thing and not just their their sort of part or piece of it. So it is definitely more than just a semantics game. We we really looked at the things that we didn't feel made made sense when we because we we've talked to a bunch of people over the years of potentially being acquired. There were just parts of that that felt like they made no sense for ambitious. Uh, ambitious entrepreneurial teams. Mm. And do you find that the entrepreneurs and founders are sticking around longer because of it? Yeah, I, I mean, knock on wood, but um, we're three years, three and a half years in now. I think we have a, a crazy hit rate when it comes to positive integrations and uh, entrepreneurs uh, sort of highly motivated and in the mix and sticking around. Um mm-hmm. Ask me in two years or three more years, but so far, I, I really think we we have solved one of the bigger issues that that the networks have had to deal with, which is you bring amazing teams in, and again, it's sort of the selling out versus buying buying in. You sort of lose quite quickly what made those teams special in the first place. Um, yeah. Which is also uh, it's it's also one of the reasons that I, I think the industry sometimes lacks a bit of innovation at scale, right? Because you have lots of really innovative partners, they get bought or acquired by less innovative companies, and then the the ability to innovate sort of tampers down. So I think part of what we're focused on is just how do you stay even at the scale, I think we're 7,000 people now. How do you stay um, in that sort of innovation landscape? How do you make sure you keep moving to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing? Mm. Well, speaking of the next thing, metaverse, uh, you brought it up before. we got to talk about it. <laughs> um, <Have to. laughs> yeah. So obviously there's a lot of hype going on here right now, but it does sort of seem like the future of, of creativity and, and marketing needs to pay attention to this space. Um, yeah. Things are heading in this direction. What's broad, big picture, what's your view on, on what's happening here? What's hype and what should brands be paying attention to? So it's the hype. It's definitely hype cycle, right? And we're, we're probably sort of peak hype cycle at the moment, but there is something foundational to the shift that, that means I think we have a pretty decent understanding of what it looks like five to 10 years from now. It's always about what do you put your um, your efforts and investments against right now. And I'm always a bit worried when you sort of hit peak hype cycle that people overinvest in it. It doesn't quite get the, the return on investment that people are hoping for. And then it just it gets scrapped from the budgets for like two, three years. So 
we, we always focus on being a good steward of these types of moments. I think the foundational piece to it, though, which, which means I, I do completely agree that it's something that we really need to pay attention to, is it's changing the, the value perception of digital. So digital or the internet originally and then digital as we speak about it now, it was always about unfettered access and more and uh, cheaper. And it was always is from Napster uh, uh, up until now, right? It was always unlimited access to everything was sort of the, the promise of digital, but it pushed down price points, right? Things weren't seen as high value meant digital advertising became the cheapest form of advertising, uh, meant um, the news industry pretty much um, uh, got uh, hollowed out because it was difficult to get to get sort of money against uh, information that was perceived to be of lower value. What is interesting about this switch to metaverse discussions is really it's making digital um, something that we can connect to scarcity or scarcity. I'm never quite sure how you pronounce it. Scarcity, I think, um, which means... Um, something can be of high value even though it is digital, right? That's really the the underlying point that's driving, I think, a lot of potential economic impact. Um, NFTs means that something that is a unique piece of code is of higher value because it is unique. Uh, metaverse, lots of investments now in in um, in land in the metaverse because it's a unique part of something. And that to me is such a foundational economic shift in how we talk about, about digital and digital experiences and digital ecosystems, that that's a pretty foundational shift in, in where companies can think about making their money and also worry uh, how much of, of existing spend goes from physical to digital spaces because of that. Because we mm. now have a model where digital spaces can be perceived as even more valuable than sort of the physical versions of it. So that that's the underpinning foundational shift that, that makes me excited. Um, are we all sort of ready player one in the next five years? No, there's so much technology and so much pipeline, and so much distribution that still needs to be figured out. Interoperability, um, how do you move from what we now see as different parts of, of something sort of broadly discuss as the metaverse all of that type of stuff is at at the very early stages so get involved start trying to figure out what the economic realities are of that type of foundational shift on your business on your product on your services and then it's uh, uh, good decision making uh, which always happens in these types of moments right where do you put efforts and energy versus just going for everything at the same time so that's interesting. That's interesting. I've never heard, um, you know, I never thought about that, that sort of shift in that way. But how do you if you're a brand, let's bring it down a level, like, where have you seen brands take good advantage of this space or when versus just sort of like, oh, here's an NFT that we don't really know <laughs> what to do with? <laughs> it's so cool, though, just having NFTs. I mean, amazing. <laughs> Well, I think even in the NFT space, there's um, there of course is sort of a, there's very much the sort of wild wild west vibe to it that nobody really knows which ones are going to hit. So I, I was in a Slack thread just now where people are doing index fund investing on 
on uh, metaverse currencies, which I, I just conceptually, I, I, I think is really uh, a fun way to talk about what's happening. Uh, for brands, I think at the moment, some of the best work we're seeing really just sits in the, in the um, uh, attention space still, right? Um, we are in something that we broadly define as part of the metaverse or Roblox or a Fortnite, and we're doing something there, which gets us really close to consumer behavior. Really, no, it's channel strategy. Nike's work on Roblox, I thought was really interesting. We all talk endlessly about um, about uh, Travis Scott in Fortnite, but uh, Adriana Grande did, I think, um, something there recently, which was also really impressive. So this idea of just being where consumers sit is probably the um, the work that I've seen that I think makes most sense at this moment in time. Some of the conversations we're having now is if you're buying a product, um, does it make sense to have a digital twin of that product, right? If it's in the space of toys or collectibles, do you buy it? And is there a digital twin connected to that? And that digital twin is yours, um, becomes sort of a minted NFT of the physical product you buy. And does it then, uh, is it a promise that that will be usable later on when we have uh, uh, an experience in Roblox or Fortnite or other places. So this idea of trying to think about extending physical products with, with digital uh, sort of minted uh, versions of it that will become more and more valuable as you use it in other digital spaces because that starts creating um, resale value. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about. Um, the resale value that you can sort of create against digital versions of uh, of the physical products. I think Nike's uh, buying of the I can't pronounce their 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 name, so sorry. Uh, the 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 virtual <laughs> sneaker company like that's a, an interesting version of that type of discussion, and you can sort of figure out where that's going. I think those things are just super interesting to think about because they're they're big shifts in mm -hmm. how we sort of talk and think about value creation. Totally. And there's there's real economic implications, right, in terms of the royalties that you can make off of yeah. NFTs and, and that as like a passive income. I can imagine that something brands are very interested in. Yeah, it, it's um, it's just uh, we were in a <laughs> we were in a, um, a session, a can session like um, last week where we, we, we'd been asked to do like a workshop on the metaverse and we had like breakout sessions. And um, the challenge was if you have $5,000 to spend in the metaverse, how would you spend it to make money? And you're not just allowed to say, I'm going to buy some Bitcoin. Um, and it was, it's, it's really complex to figure out still, right? Because you have a bunch of really smart creative people and everybody came up with the exact same idea. Mm. Uh, which is I'm gonna do uh, I'm I'm gonna open up a realtor a metaverse realtor, um, so we're still in that sort of first wave where everything is about mimicking uh, a real world economic model and seeing what it looks like in the metaverse. Um, uh. But I I think there are actually bigger foundational changes that we'll see over the next few years that just have completely different sort of economic models, which I think is pretty cool. So as a creative agency. Like, how big of a focus is this for you um, as we head into next year and beyond? Well, it's it's a big focus because 
two things. Honestly, when I think about the original intent of Media Monks and why we founded it uh, almost 21 years ago, um, it was just the excitement of a new thing and the idea that you could use an emerging channel really to, to sort of have cool um, interactions and engagements. And we didn't use these words back then, of course. It was just, let's do cool stuff. Um, <laughs> But the idea that, that new channels and new forms of, of interaction allow you to do exciting things, this switch, and switch is maybe too heavy a word, right? It's going to be a long process. This is as foundational a, a, um, a next step as I've seen when it comes to how can we change the way people sort of uh, interact and, and play around and engage with other people in digital spaces. So there's just lots of excitement from our perspective. And because of our current role in the industry, we literally get to figure out what this thing is, right? Because mm -hmm. we're working with a lot of the, the companies that are on the front lines of it. So we're in rooms going, what is this thing actually? And what should it be? And why is it fun? And why is it important? And why, why is this functionality good and this functionality bad? Being at at the front lines of that is just amazing for our team. For me, I just love it. Uh, mm -hmm. The other part of that is every single one of our clients is having a version of this conversation right now, right? Some are talking about the metaverse. Some are talking about some type of, um, of uh, digital currency or NFT component. Some are talking about sort of the foundational production pipeline um, elements to this, right? Do we move from traditional CGI to Unreal Engine, for instance? Mm. So every version of every client we have is having a version of this conversation, and we just think we're we're very well suited to, to be uh, a useful part of that conversation because we have this interesting component of we understand what's happening, but we also make a lot of the things that are defining what's happening. And that, that just isn't, yeah, most most of our, I guess, uh, frenemies do not have that sort of broad set, right? They might, might have the thinkers, but they, they have a limited amount of the makers. Mm. And we have both, which is just really fun. Well, yeah, what's interesting about Media Monks is, um, you know, the production focus. Like, I feel like back in the day production, it wasn't as sexy. A lot of creative agencies, they maybe outsourced it, but now with the need for content just yep. exploding, production is fundamental, right? Like you need those those makers. Um, do you feel like that's become more true since you started Media Monks? And, and do you think that it's important for creativity and production to be sitting together and why? Yeah, I mean, when we started, when we started uh, focusing on production, uh, it was it was so far away from what the industry thought was important. Well, important maybe not. Like there was definitely the people understood the the value of craft. Um, I think Hegarty had like this famous quote where uh, quality of the work is uh, is seventy percent idea and seventy percent production. Right, both both are equally important, but if they they spin up at the highest level, you get you get a better result um, than you could normally expect. So I think there was always a respect for makers and and production, but it was very far removed from clients. I don't think clients really had a line of sight on maker talent. Um, what then happened, and we've seen that process just 
really play out over the last decade or so as digital became the more dominant um, part of the sort of advertising ecosystem, just from a spend perspective, you get to the point that you need more stuff and the stuff you need is a lot more um, tactile, right? It needs to be super aware of where it's being interacted with. Um, and sometimes we, we sort of use the term personalization for that, which I don't think really is what's happening there. It's it's this idea that if you're if you're putting something out into a channel, it needs to be aware of that channel, understand what expected or or uh, fun user experiences in that channel are. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you needed more stuff, which meant you needed to make more stuff. And when you make more stuff, you want the makers to be aware of what they're making it for. And that shift of last decade has just gone from it purely the the idea that defines the quality of this work and then a single piece of, of content to, wait a minute, it's actually understanding how consumers across all of these different channels want to interact with the brand, with the product, with the service. And can we try and be as, as sort of creatively interesting and celebratory as possible across all of those spaces? So now when you... Uh, we we're in endless conversations now, uh, not just about the metaverse, but also about TikTok, right? You have so many brands that really want to do TikTok well. Mm-hmm. So much of that is down to just having the makers make it, right? You can't just go top down and go, I shot an ad, let's make it cool for TikTok. Completely fails, mm-hmm. has no value whatsoever. So it's way more bottoms up. It's creator first, it's maker first. Um, and I think everybody has seen that, that, that process over the last decade or so. I think for us, every step along that way just felt like the the needle was moving in our direction, right? Because that's where we were always at. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just been really interesting to see that play out, uh, to be honest. Yeah, it's super interesting. I'm actually curious, like, you know, there's all this talk about the talent crunch and, and people are struggling to find talent. Are you looking at like, and do you hire actual influencers like these people that are essential to creating a great tiktok campaign is that the type of talent you're looking to bring in house yeah yeah we we have more and more uh, what we call creators just people that are great at making for the medium uh and then connecting them to clients uh which it's to your point there's 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 sort of the traditional influencer model which we do a lot of and um if done well i still think it's it's, it's a bit undervalued by more traditional uh, sort of teams because it, it does two weird things, right? It, it, it democratizes creativity to an extent because it's, it's down to the influencer to, to sort of make the, make the creative take the brief and sort of come up with what makes sense. And it, it undermines the, the, the commercial model of media a bit. So mm-hmm. influence marketing often is seen as as something like uh, an add-on we do a lot of both influencer work and and sort of creator first work and we put it very much up front because in today's landscape it just tends to perform a lot better uh, mm-hmm. but that's 100 percent the talent we we bring to the table that we're looking to add always just people that are amazing at making the things that that you want to interact and play with when you're in digital spaces um, same when it comes to lenses, like some of the some of the coolest lens work is done by a random seventeen year old or twenty one year old somewhere who's just playing around 
with the um, with the tools and technology that Snap and Facebook and the likes put out into the ecosystem. We do a lot of scouting in in those types of communities. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, I think to your point, you kind of have to put influencers and creators and you know to a larger extent, your audience at the center of, of any creative idea these days, right? Yeah, and it's it's fun. It's like, you, I guess, not easy for every business and brand to do, but you can be more immediate, right? You can, you can sort of get something out relatively quickly. Doesn't, especially on TikTok, it's less about perfect and it's more about the, the tone and the moment. Um, and if you feel comfortable with that i think it's it's such a joyful sort of ecosystem to to play around in it's really cool mm-hmm. yeah to your point though about it sort of breaking the the commercial model of, of media like a lot of brands i think are still adapting to that how do you see that shaking out uh and and you know what does it mean for some of the more traditional players in the space well it's it's difficult, I think, um, on the one hand, the idea of, of sort of organic, because um, it, it's two, um, I guess, powers that play into each other, right? You have the big traditional um, uh, media agencies who have a clear commercial model, but then you also have the platforms, the Googles, the Facebooks that have a really clear commercial model. So largely they they build into each other right it's it's in everybody's favor if organic is is not that successful because you need paid so i i I think in the end just because the commercial models are are codependent um it'll it'll keep it'll keep sort of working its way up Uh, more spend goes into those places more focus on, on metrics will keep sort of pushing that um We'll, we'll be pushing that into into people's sort of planning. I think uh, there's some changes where money moves from one space to another space, depending on a bit of hype or a moment in time. Uh, I think TikTok is probably the one that's getting most of the upside there at the moment. But mm-hmm. the exciting part is that every time that something new sort of hits, there is a, a period where as a brand, you can get the the um, the upside of just being first and being fun and being part of it in the best mm-hmm. possible way. So I think it's it's more about being mindful that every time consumer behavior sort of shifts a bit and it goes into a different space or channel, and I, I guess to an extent the metaverse conversation we just had is a part of that. If you're there early, you can get over-rewarded, right? There, there's still less sort of, um, there's less paid, there's more organic opportunity mm-hmm. um, to, to plug into. So I think it's more of a mindset that you need mm-hmm. than that it's, um, that it's sort of a, a given, right? It's this constantly evolving landscape and just try and be first in what's next. Mm, yep, for sure. So you guys have done a lot of uh, mergers in the past few years. What other capabilities do you need that you don't have yet? That's a good question. Um well, it's you look at it through a few different lenses. I think we're definitely looking at adding more maker talent in uh, in metaverse related um, in metaverse related sort of production landscapes like in Unreal. Um, that that's something where we just see it as the next great wave of of um, or sort of technology implementation asks as well. So 
more scale in those areas, super important for us. Uh, want to really double down more on e-commerce. I think we have some really strong e-commerce uh, teams when it comes to channel-specific areas like an Amazon. I think we have very strong e-commerce views when it comes to elements like the digital shelf, just this idea that, that you want to be um, easily buyable across an ecosystem, especially now that social commerce is, is, is doubling down. But I, we all feel that we can be uh, a bigger and better e-commerce partner to our clients by adding additional capabilities there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always just interested in, in high-quality digital talent because I think it's, uh, to an extent, uh, it's sort of owning the means of production. I think there, there's a limited amount of teams and talent that do the very best work. So we're always talking to those teams, um, seeing if we can get more to join because I, I just think there's something really, really powerful in just making the best stuff. Um, and then it'll, it'll be ongoing, right? Sometimes we look at, at more scale in specific countries or regions. I think uh, we would like to, to grow more and quicker in Asia Pacific. Um, mm-hmm. That's definitely an area of, of growth that we're looking at. So, yeah, it's uh, lots of stuff. Mm, exciting. And so, you know, you've been working with uh, Sir Martin for a few years now. How's that been going? You tired yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, uh, I call it uh, my MBA, Martin's business advice. Um, <laughs> but no, it's, it's also, it's been pretty amazing. Um, just the, yeah, the, the high energy and intent, like you being able to work with somebody that, that just has had this amazing run in the industry and then understanding why um, is, uh, is super fun. Uh, I, I have to say we, we, for the first, I think 14, 15 months of, of sort of COVID, uh, we had a daily call, uh, after 15 months of those, I'm, I'm glad we've now turned it into a weekly call. So (laughs) I have to say like, one of the things that, that I most had to get used to because you then you also honestly recognize what what you used to do or what you do, which is irritating for the people you work with, is the forwarded email or the randomly getting CC'd into an email reply, where it's like, "Hey, Wesley's going to have a look at this." I I used to do that with with people I work with. I'm now aware that that's uh, that's. Uh, <laughs> That, that that that's actually quite irritating. So I stopped doing it to others. That that's my uh, that's my takeaway. So you've learned what annoys you, and you stop doing it to your team. Yes, yeah. That, that's like my I've 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 now I'm now aware of what that that is. So I've stopped doing that. But no, overall, it's been pretty amazing. It's been uh, it's been super fun. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Wes, uh, for joining us and. Um, a lot of exciting stuff coming down the pike. So happy holidays. And we'll talk again in 2022. Same to you, Allison. Looking forward to catching up uh, next year. And I hope you have some decent December downtime planned. I definitely do. <laughs> I hope you do too. <laughs> cool. Appreciate it. That's all the time we have this week. Thanks for tuning in to Campaign Chemistry. And we'll see you next time.